Welcome to Wisco Legacy. I'm your host, Corey Kuhnert. In Wisco Legacy, we talk to inspiring Wisconsinites to hear about their journey through life. Today, we have Dusty Weiss. Dusty is the founder and president of PodCamp Media and the host of the Lead Balloon Podcast, a podcast focused on strategic communications and marketing disasters. It's super engaging. Dusty's an incredible storyteller, as you'll hear throughout this podcast. And as you can see, this podcast is pretty long today. Uh, Dusty had some really fun stories I just couldn't cut out. So uh, we kept this one a little long, so you have to consume it in, in chunks. That's totally fine with me. Um, he gets into his time as, uh, as a high school student here in Monroe. He talks about uh, moving down to Miami, uh, interviewing LeBron James, and uh, seeing Dwayne Wade in the locker room, and uh, reporting on a guy who had his face bitten off by another guy down in Miami. Just crazy stories uh, from Dusty, and he's so great at telling them. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, check out this episode of Wisco Legacy. Next week, we have a really powerful episode with Jacob Swag. A family in Monroe uh, had tragedy strike back in 2012 when their son uh, took his life, and they've taken that tragedy and really uh, done a lot of incredible work over the last nearly 10 years to uh, help with suicide prevention and education. So please, please listen to next week's episode. It's extremely powerful. Um, so with that, uh, go find us on social media at, at Wisco Legacy and follow us and rate us and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. So with that, let's dive into this episode, episode 15 with Dusty Weiss. Hi, I'm Dusty Weiss. I'm the host of the Lead Balloon Podcast and the president of PodCamp Media, and this is my Wisco Legacy. Uh, today's episode, we have Dusty Weiss. Dusty is the host of the Lead Balloon Podcast and the president of PodCamp Media. Dusty's also a fellow Monroe Cheesemaker alum. Uh, so Dusty, welcome to Wisco Legacy. Corey, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. So I want to start with the early days down here in Monroe. Uh, can you talk about what you were involved in as a kid and talk about the community of Monroe as it was growing up? Oh my gosh. Uh, I mean, when you're a Monroe expat like I am, and you look back at the time that you spent in Monroe, uh, Monroe is an awesome little community. Uh, it's full of great people. And uh, at the end of the day, when you're 18 years old versus when you're 36, like I am now, uh, Monroe is just, it's two different kinds of town. You know, I think like a lot of kids, when I was young and in high school, you looked at Monroe and you're like, I just want to get out and see the world. I've got all this pent up energy and creativity and I want to do all the things and see all the sights and all of that. And this town is holding me down. And, uh, and, and now I look back at it and it's like, man, that's a great little town. It's got some great character. We've got all kinds of fun things going down, going on. We've got the cheese days. We've got this incredible legacy of German and Swiss immigrants and all the cool things that they did. And, uh, and it, I kind of wish that I had stopped to appreciate it for what it was a little bit more when I was young and full of piss and vinegar. Uh, because it's a great place to raise a family and it's a great place to come up as a, a kid. But, um, you know, my experience growing up in Monroe was, I think, similar to a lot of folks. You know, I got involved in uh, in, in some uh, community programs. Um, certainly one of the biggest forces that I think that uh, helped shape me as a young adult was my involvement with the Monroe Theater Guild. Uh, both of my parents uh, were really heavily involved in the Monroe Theater Guild. 
Uh, my dad liked to act in some of the shows that they put on and uh, directed a few shows as well. Um, and my mom got involved as well and wound up working backstage or helping with the promotion uh, and production side of a lot of the shows that they put on. But I grew up around that crowd of people and it was less like a community theater group and more like a family uh, to me, you know, and uh, and again, having grown up in Wisconsin, we all have the stories that we tell of like hanging out in bars with our parents. But that was where that was where I got to, you know, get my time in hanging out down at Turner Hall or hanging out down at Swiss House when I was like, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old was uh, with mom and dad and the cast parties and all the wild and crazy folks that and and passionate, creative people uh, involved with the Monroe Theater Guild, just trying to tell great stories to the community and 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 just trying to find these awesome creative outlets. And so uh, that was where you know I got to build my first set and and learn how to swing a hammer and uh, do you know a little bit of stage carpentry. And and that was ultimately where I learned how to work a soundboard and run a live mix and start building up all of these skills that at the time I just thought that it was like fun, cool, nerdy stuff to do. Um, but ultimately it, it wound up uh, uh, building up a skill set that would pave the way to my passion, basically um, help me find a career and, uh, and, and kind of move on. So yeah, Monroe was an, uh, in, in, in an awesome place, I think, for my parents to raise a family and uh, uh, really just uh, a great launching pad for me as I was, you know, looking for things that were going to uh, feed me and sustain me creatively for the rest of my life. It seems like you got that passion built in when you were eight, nine, 10, 11 years old, uh, and you've pursued that, uh, that creativity and that, that side of things. It's really awesome to hear that you, you got the, that experience early on. Well, you know, I, I feel like I was really lucky, too, because I came up with a group of friends in Monroe who were all really driven and were all really creative and just a little bit screwy, too. I mean, I look back at, you know, the friends that I had in high school and, and the trouble that we used to get into and, and, and frankly, you know, <laughs> I talk about having creative outlets and, and, you know, we had, we had theater, we had band, you know, we, we had these things that were sort of supplied to us through the school, but we were also, we were very understimulated. Mm -hmm. And so when people talk about investing in the arts or investing in school programs, funding for schools, we had programs to keep us busy, but we didn't have enough of them. Mm -hmm. And so all that pent up creative energy, I'm sorry, but it went into going out and causing mischief. <laughs> and so like, I think about, I, I probably won't cop to some of the trouble that we got into. Um, we did go out and get into trouble on Friday and Saturday nights because there weren't, there was not stuff to entertain us otherwise and keep us off the streets. But like, all of these incredibly passionate, talented, zany people that I ran around with back then, uh, we all just, we fed off one another's energy and everybody has gone on to do really cool things in their lives and everybody uh, I'm still in touch with. And I just, I feel really, really fortunate to have this 
space of really cool people who I can still call my friends after all these years. I mean, it's been carry the one a lot of years since I graduated high school and most of my high school friends I'm I'm still in touch with regularly and even get a chance to hang out with sometimes and so I don't know how many people get to say that uh in this day and age but uh it's really cool and it feels really special yeah that's that's super awesome you still have that um kind of Dovetailing a little bit off of that, uh, who were some of the more impactful people that you had around you growing up? I know you had a really great friend group, but was there um, other people in the theater guild or school or, or whatnot that had a big impact in your life growing up? We were not aware of how lucky we were to have so many great ones at Monroe High School. And I'm afraid to make a list because I'm afraid I'll leave someone off. But if we're just going to rattle off the fantastic teachers um, and mentors that we have, that we had, I mean, Tom Schilt and Randy Schneeberger, uh, the band directors that we had at the time, are legends. Mm -hmm. They're just two of the most impactful people that uh, that we were able to look up to. And I'm the first to admit my talent as a musician was crap. Like <laughs> I just, I, I was in band, not because I was good at it and not because music was my passion, although it, it, it's played an important part in my life. Music has simply because of the appreciation that I gained for it in the Monroe band. But I was in it because that's where my friends were at the end of the day. Like I wasn't, mm-hmm. I wasn't a good drummer. Nobody will ever tell you I was a great drummer. <laughs> I wasn't. Um, but it, the passion that Tom Schilt and Randy Schneeberger brought to what they did was so infectious. And I, I certainly took a passion for music away from that, but I also knew just having been around those two guys that whatever I did in my life, I wanted to be as fired up about it as they were fired up about teaching band to high school kids and as they were fired up about music and loving it and appreciating it. So those guys are top of the list, but then, I mean, you just got to run down the list. Uh, uh, Jeff Bennett uh, and his stagecraft class uh, were some of the most fun that I got to have in high school, building the sets for the school plays um, and, and then acting in those plays too. But Jeff Bennett was a great dude. Lana Carter, is she still teaching? I don't think so. I think she retired. I think I think ago. she probably retired. I think she also probably got dragged out <laughs> kicking and screaming because Carter, that's what I talk about legends. Uh-huh. Oh my God. And and what I loved about Carter, an English teacher, for those who aren't familiar with her, is that when dudes like me walked into Carter's class and thought that we were hot shit because we were pretty decent writers and and you know like to read she would just knock you down a peg and let you know i remember one time one of my best buddies in high school is clinton bader and uh and and we had uh carter's brit lit class together and and we thought that we could be badasses and just choose not to do our homework because we didn't feel like it and uh so one time uh carter's walking around the room um collecting homework and she gets to Clinton. She goes, and where's your homework? And he goes, he just looks at her, he crosses his arms and he goes, I didn't do it. Carter looks at him. Boom! Backhands him upside the head and says, what the hell is the matter with you? Do your homework. 
And A, like, I'm not going to sit here in this day and age. Oh my God. Cause it was, it was against policy when she did it back then. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was the only way to get through right. to shitheads like us <laughs> was you had to give it to us right back. And so Carter didn't back down from anybody. Um, and then I looked back uh, at uh, 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 Mr. Beaneman, um, biology and science teacher, and the way that he approached learning uh, is, I think, one of the most valuable lessons that I took away uh, from Monroe High School, because that is a dude who never stopped learning his entire life. And he was one of the smartest dudes in that school. He knew everything about everything. But I think it was it was once every week or once every two weeks, he would just have a class session uh, in one of the science classes I took with him uh, where he would just sit there and answer questions all day. <laughs> He'd be like, we've done enough We've done enough book learning this week. Now I want to know what's on your mind. What do you want to learn about? And we would pitch him just all kinds of crazy, you know, uh, how does how does cell division work? And, you know, how wh- how does a black hole work? How does a gravity well work? And like all and he would just answer these questions and knock them down and explain it to you like it was like. Obviously, he knew these were difficult questions, but he was explaining it in plain English. And the best part is that he wasn't afraid to admit when he was stumped. He'd be like, that's a really good one. I don't know it. I'm going to look it up and we're going to talk about it next week. And that approach to learning and and growing in science uh, was just incredible. And And again... It seems like those sorts of teachers and role models were the rule and not the exception at Monroe High School. And and I could go on and I'm, I'm leaving people out. Um, you know, uh, Mr. Baker, uh, an English teacher, is another one that really had an impact on me and helped me develop as, as a writer. Uh, uh, Mr. Stoffiger and Mrs. Schiltz and their American Studies class uh, was was groundbreaking. It was so so formative and and i can again just run down this list but we just we had great teachers in monroe and i don't think realized how lucky we were but you know i'm better for it today and i I really think that everybody that had them is yeah i i agree i had a couple of those teachers mrs carter specifically uh and oh i love carter oh yeah oh i hope she's doing well another one of my high school buddies and i uh joe dalton um we got it in our head one day you know we were hanging out on an afternoon, like you're prone to, it was like a half day of school and we didn't really know what to do. And we were driving around in his crappy old Ford Maverick. It's like a 1974, it had a three on the tree manual transmission, but the transmission was installed backwards. So you had to shift it backwards. Otherwise you would literally just drop the transmission in the middle of the road. And so we're like ramming around out North of town, not really sure what to do. And he's like, let's go visit Carter. And I'm like, you know where she lives? <laughs> and he's like, hell yeah, I do. And so we go down this side country road and pull off onto this long gravel driveway. And we see Lana Carter out running around. And do you remember she used to talk about her ducks? She yeah. had ducks. Mm-hmm. She kept ducks. Well, her ducks had gotten out. <sighs> and she was like, as we come pulling down her driveway unexpectedly just showing up unwelcomed at her house she's out chasing her ducks around and she sees us and without batting an eye she goes help me catch these ducks <laughs> we just, 
not what are you doing on my property, you assholes, but help me get these damn ducks, man. And uh, and and that was Lana Carter, man. Oh, I miss her something fierce. I hope she's doing well. Oh, man. I, I can only imagine the things that were coming out of her mouth when those ducks got out. <laughs> oh, man. So one, uh, you got into... Uh, big radio. You interned in big radio down here, WKZ. Um, what was it like getting getting that internship and sitting in front of the mic for the first time? Oh my God, it was one of the best jobs I ever had, man. I think I think I would go so far as to say that working out at big radio, WEKZ, what have you, that was the best job that I've ever had. And but for the fact that you know I was making eight twenty five an hour, I could have stayed and done that job forever. <laughs> so fun um i started working at wekz when i was 17 years old it was the summer between my junior and senior year of high school and i was in chorus class with ethan blue uh who's another another big radio alum um he was a year ahead of me in high school and he was graduating he was going to go off to college and I knew that he worked at WEKZ, and I knew that that was just something that was interesting to me. I mean, uh, radio is has always, and, and broadcast in general, and audio has always fascinating, always fascinated me. I still think it's the best way to tell a story. And I grew up listening to, you know, Bob Euchre doing the Brewers play by play, and listening to Sly in the morning on. Uh, 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 101.5 WIBA out of Madison and and uh, listening to Michael Feldman on weekends on Wisconsin Public Radio. And, uh, and, and I didn't know it at the time, but the trajectory of my career would take me to work in proximity to each one of those people at some point. I didn't know it yet, but um, I, I just knew that it seemed like a really, really cool way to make a living is just telling stories and, and moving people with your voice. And, uh, so my parents will tell you, and, and my classmates will tell you that from a very young age, I was pretty weird about audio. I'd carry a, a tape recorder with me to, uh, to school when I was in like the third and fourth grade. And I have the tapes still. Nice. <laughs> I have all these. Oh my God. And, and just like, you know, ask kids about, you know, what, what do you think about the OJ Simpson trial? And like talking to my classmates about stuff like that. Um, and, and so it was in my blood uh, for a long time. And so, and I knew Ethan had that job at WEKZ. And so toward the end of the school year, I'm like, so how do I, how do I get in there? You're leaving, you're going to college. Um, they're going to have an opening. Like, what can I do? And he's like, Scott Thompson is the owner. Just call the law office because Scott's a lawyer and, and owning the radio station was always like his side hustle, except it wasn't mm -hmm. <laughs> like that dude just has a bunch of main hustles. Right. Um, and he's like, call Scott at the law office, make an appointment to just come in and introduce yourself and tell him point blank that you want a job. And so hands shaking, pick up the phone, punch in his secretary and, uh, uh, and, and make that phone call. And, and sure enough, I, I put on the suit that I had bought for prom and, and walked in and sat down with Scott and told him that I, I wanted a job. And he kind of crossed his arms and he goes, you came all the way down here to tell me that he goes, okay. 
what uh, what experience do you have? And I'm like, well, I, I run soundboards for Monroe Theater Guild production. And he's like, oh, okay, I think we could probably find some work for you to do. And so uh, that was that. My first job in radio was at uh, Big Radio, and, and I got paid to tie balloons at the Greene County Fair and, and the Lafayette County Fair and, and give them out to little kids. And eventually they had an opening after school. And so my senior year of high school, I'd go out there uh, every day and just sort of help out around the office and, uh, uh, you know, record the Edward Jones reports and uh, and upload that into the system. And, and it, it, it really was it was, you know, they tell you the best way to get into any field is to get a foot in the door. And it really was just a foot in the door. I was doing all grunt work all the time. Um, you know, but, but you start learning these skills. I, I learned how to edit audio, uh, in, uh, in a nonlinear, uh, uh, software, a DAWs. Um, and that, that's a, a skill set that I still use today every day. And I learned it there and all due credit to, you know, I talked earlier about how important it is to have great mentors. Every single person that I worked with at WEKZ, with zero exceptions, was an awesome mentor. Because I look at my life now and I'm like, ugh, it would be such a pain to have a 17-year-old kid just like taking up my space and like cluttering up my work day. And these people didn't just tolerate me. They encouraged me and taught me and and gave me a space to start to learn how to develop my own voice. And again, you know, the fear of forgetting any names uh, it keeps you from doing it, but not just Scott Thompson, who, again, didn't have to pay some high school kid $8.25 to do a job. Um, you know, there's automation that could have done these things, but Scott understands the importance of developing a deep bench and having people that you can move up the ranks and giving young people an opportunity to express themselves creatively, but also begin to develop the skills that they need to get ahead in the world. And so I'll, I'll do credit to, to Scott and his family for, for taking the chance on young guys like me and Ethan and, uh, Joe Brogy, um, and, and all the other young folks that worked in there because, you know, we, we weren't always the most reliable. I, uh, one of the first jobs that I got at WEKZ was I got to sit and run the soundboard during high school football games. Obviously broadcasting football games is a big thing for them out there. And I'd be the one back in the studio, turning the dials and pushing the knobs and buttons to keep things on the air. But, one of the dumbest things that I ever did was uh, the system runs on automatic or it runs on manual. And it won when it runs on automatic, it just makes sure that whatever's programmed next, it just keeps playing things. Mm. But when you're doing something like football game or live programming, you've got to switch it to manual and fire the carts automatically to keep it going. And so I wrapped up a, a football game on uh, WEKZ FM, then called the Big Easy. It was the flagship station at the time big FM, big water and, uh, and, and wrapped up the football game and went, there we go. Let's play, uh, let's play the run around. All right. I'm out of here. Hopped in my car, drove home and I wake up the next morning and it's my mom. And she's like, son, and it was like, 
6 a.m. My mom's poking me. Son, I just turned on the radio. There's nothing. There's nothing on WEKZ. And I went, I forgot to switch it back to automatic. <laughs> wow. And so I got the, and everyone did. Everyone got this talk from Scott one time or another. But I got the famous, now I'm not going to yell at you talk. And of course, all the rooms out at the, we call it the chalet in the valley. All the rooms out at the chalet in the valley are soundproofed because it's a radio station. And when Scott tells you he's not going <laughs> to yell at you, that's probably the only lie that he's going <laughs> to tell you in the next half hour because I caught it. I caught it for that one. Oh, I'm sure. And I deserve to, but he didn't fire me on the spot and he gave me a second chance. He knew that I had to learn and develop as a professional and 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 I was afforded more opportunities uh, than I could have hoped for to to learn and grow um, at uh, at WEKZ. I uh, shortly a few months into my time there, after I had started in the after school shift, um, the fellow that was uh, in charge of recording the overnight shifts, uh, a fellow by the name of Dick Lyons, really good dude, but he was an older gent and his health was not so great. And so he had to have an operation and that eventually sidelined him into retirement. And so this overnight shift opened up and, uh, and, and I got the call up. Um, I, I got asked, Hey, you know, while you're here doing these other jobs, do you want to record the overnight shift? And, uh, and, and of course I fell all over myself. That is what I had been hoping for the entire time. You don't want to just out and out ask for it, but, uh, you drop the subtle hints here and there. And so I became an on-air person and, and again, opened up a, a whole trajectory to me that I didn't, didn't know was available. One more story about Monroe high school while we're on the topic, because I think I've hinted, I was not the best student, um, in my time at Monroe high school. And one class that, uh, uh, uh I struggled to hold my attention on sometimes was Spanish class. And, uh, was, uh, Profe Hendrickson still teaching yep. there when you were there? Yep. Yeah. Lovely lady, lovely lady. Um, I sometimes fell asleep in her class. <laughs> and so one time I, she caught me napping. I was doing uh, one of those in her class and she's like, Domingo, see me after class. And I'm like, oh God, I'm going to catch it. Crap. So I go up to her after class and, and she says, Domingo, I was up late last night grading papers and I had the radio on. And I heard you say, and I heard you on the radio and you said that you were going to be there from 11 to five in the morning. Now I know why you're always falling asleep in my class. And it was sort of, it was one of those moments where I'm like, technically I didn't tell a lie here. Do I correct her? Right. And go to hell or do I let this lie continue? Uh, but no, I, I came clean. I told her that it was pre-recorded. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, it sounds like you had a, a really awesome experience in Monroe. Uh, a lot of, a lot of things helped shape you and uh, big easy or big radio, uh, definitely helped build you, build a foundation for you, uh, to move forward with your career. And, um, was there any doubt that you were going to pursue, a, a a major in journalism? Uh, oh, Absolutely. Yeah, I actually, when I went to the University of Wisconsin, uh, originally I majored in uh, communication arts, radio, TV, film, hmm. 
Um, but my emphasis in that was actually on the film production side of things. I thought that I wanted to uh, write and direct movies <laughs> at the time. Um, and I don't know, ne- I don't necessarily know where I got that idea in my head. Um, I certainly, I enjoyed studying that, but I added journalism as a second major, uh, as I progressed. And I really, I started to find my calling, uh, there, uh, a, a lot more, um, th- that, and it was something that I could pursue in my own backyard where the filmmaking thing, um, you know, I kind of, I had one foot in both worlds for a long time. Uh, after I graduated at UW Madison, uh, a couple buddies and I, we actually shot and produced an indie film, um, that was sort of autobiographical in a lot of ways about growing up in a small town. Um, and, uh, and, and just the process of, of shooting and producing that film, uh, <laughs> was enough to convince me that, yeah, I think journalism is the career path for me because this other thing, it's a lot. And, uh, uh, but yeah, no, I, uh, I dabbled. I definitely, I spent a good year and a half dabbling when I arrived at the university of Wisconsin. And I'm glad that I did. It really made me a lot more sure of, uh, of the choices that I would eventually come to make. Yeah. The, the film side of it. Yeah. I listen to a lot of podcasts with actors and things like that who also direct and produce and, I couldn't imagine doing all of that. Um, I don't know when you'd see your family or ever be home. It's just, it's a lot of work. And if you want to take it seriously, and I do, I have friends from school that went off and and do it for a living now, but you've got to move to the East coast or you've got to move to the West coast. And, and unfortunately there's not a very, very strong professional body of opportunities in the Midwest outside of, you know, Chicago, Mm -hmm. but who wants to live in Chicago, right? (laughs) Not us Wisconsinites. Oh. oh yeah. So you ended up, uh, doing, uh, after, after college, you ended up, uh, in both print and radio media. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I landed my first, I mean, I did a little bit of journalism when I was at WEKZ. I eventually, because they just kept throwing opportunities at me. Um, they let me do a little bit of news, a little news reporting, a little news anchoring while I was there. Um, which was awesome. But I guess my first real journalism experience outside of that uh, came via an internship, uh, paid internship through the Hawks program uh, at University of Wisconsin. I got placed for a summer at uh, the Portage Daily Register uh, in Portage, Wisconsin, where the North begins, as they say. And uh, after I completed my internship, uh, the editor, another really, really great mentor and, and person who helped shape my career, uh, Jason Maddox, uh, invited me to come back and continue to work part time uh, as a reporter there, um, even as I was finishing up my college degree. And so after I graduated, then I was able to uh, come on full time at the Portage Daily Register as a full time print journalist. Um, but certainly my uh, My heart, my roots were in broadcast, uh, were in radio and audio. And so eventually the opportunity came up then uh, to take a job back in Madison uh, at WTDY AM, uh, 1670 on your dial, a radio station that is unfortunately no longer with us, but uh, such is the shifting and evolving nature of uh, radio these days. Yeah. And I think I read that you, you ended up down in Florida for a bit too. Yeah. How'd that happen? Well, 
Um, so my time at WTDY was uh, pretty remarkable. I got to cover some, uh, some really important news stories, uh, as a reporter in Madison. Um, and in that time, I also got called up to serve as a correspondent for the CBS network, uh, their network of, I think it's like 800, 850 radio stations around the country. When there was a major national news story in Madison, they didn't have a bureau there to cover it. And so they would need a local correspondent to file reports and, and provide something from the scene. So um, I got a little more and a little more exposure with CBS. And then in 2011, uh, Governor Walker's Act 10 happened. And uh, I can say apolitically that no matter how you feel about it, it was one of the biggest national news stories that year. And I was on CBS pretty much every other day for months on end and spent a lot of time uh, just embedded down at the state capitol following what was going on with the protests or following what was going on with the state legislature. Uh, There was one really, really wild day when uh, the state assembly was scheduled to vote on Act 10. Um, The vote, we were told, was supposed to be at 10 a.m. And as a reporter, I need to be in the room. I need to report on I need to be in the building. I need to be able to report on what's going on there. Not only that, but there is there's this protest sit in that's happening. Uh, I'm getting reports from my sources that uh, protesters have barricaded themselves in the assembly antechamber and they're being forcibly removed by state troopers. And all of this is like coming to me. As I'm like on my way to the building at 7 30, 8 o'clock in the morning, I'm like, wow, this is going to be a long day. And I get there and all the doors to the state capitol are locked. Wow. And that's bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Bill of Rights guarantees you as a citizen uh, the right to have your grievances redressed. It's a public building and it's by state law, it's required to be open to the public when the people's business is being discussed in the people's house. And so sitting here looking at this locked door, trying to figure out how I'm going to do my job for the day. And, and uh, it turned out it wasn't just that door. It was all the doors to the building. And it wasn't just me. It was pretty much any member of the public and any member of the media who couldn't get into the building while this news was breaking and unfolding inside the state capitol. And I've been in the middle of a lot of protests during my time as a news reporter. I've been in the middle of a lot of crowds of people that are really, really, really angry. Um, And for the most part, the state capitol protests over Act 10 were incredibly peaceful and well-organized. And while there was tension, there was never any fear that anybody was going to get hurt. And I will say that that day was the lone exception when they locked the doors to that building and people got real mad about it. And so people are milling around outside the building. They want to know what's happening. Media are unable to get inside and report to the people what's happening there. And so I eventually called up a state lawmaker who I had a pretty good working relationship with and said, what's going on in there? Like, we need to get in and and report on this news that's happening. And she said, yeah, I, 
Department of Administration have orders from the governor to lock the building down. There's there's not really anything I can do. And I go, really? There's nothing that you can do? And she's like, well, I'll tell you what. Come over to the west end of the building. You know where my office is inside the building. It's on the first floor. I'll come find the window. I'll open the window. And so I grab a dozen other reporters I know who are looking to get in there. And and then we're just standing around outside this office window. And it's uh, 9.30 and I'm due to do a, 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 a live hit with WCCO in Minneapolis and, and John Williams, uh, who was the host there at the time. And so I'm live on the air with John Williams describing the scene and the Reverend Jesse Jackson is a hundred yards down from me, like getting the crowd all riled up and all of a sudden the window goes up and I'm like, John, I got to go. I have to climb into a window to get into the state Capitol to do my job today. And that's what we did is we just scampered right up into that window and got up to the assembly chambers and made it just in time to uh, cover the vote um, that morning. But all of that being a really roundabout way of saying that uh, eventually uh, it uh, it got to the point where I you know wanted uh, wanted to see how far I could pursue this news thing and so uh, got had developed some contacts at WIOD in Miami and uh, applied for a, a job as a news reporter there and I like to tell people that it is the study abroad experience that I didn't have the money to take in college. Because Miami, I feel like you should have a worker's visa to go work in that town, man, because it is a foreign place. And it was it was a wild experience for this small town, Wisconsin boy to to get to report the news in a news city like Miami. But, you know, I covered I covered the NBA finals. Mm -hmm. I I got to interview LeBron after he got his first ring uh, with the Miami Heat. Um, I was in the locker room as as Dwayne Wade was spraying champagne all over the place. Huh. Um, I covered uh, covered the opening of the new Marlins Stadium down there. I covered. Uh, do you remember the guy they called the Miami Zombie? Uh, I don't uh, think so. It was it was big news back in like 2011, 2012. Uh, this this dude got really high on bath salts and like attacked another guy on the MacArthur Causeway. <laughs> And the police showed up and the guy that was high on bath salts was literally eating the face of the other guy like ah, wow. like that. <laughs> and so it was a Saturday afternoon at like 2.30 and I get this press release from Miami Beach PD and I look at it and I've got to do a newscast at three o'clock and I go <laughs> pick up the phone. Beep, 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 beep. Yeah, hi, it's it's my contact at uh, Miami Beach PD. I'm like, hey, I got your news release here. Uh, wanted to ask you about this. This is a typo, right? This is supposed to say beating his face, not no. No, he was eating, eating his face, like with his mouth. Okay, just wanted to make sure before I went to air with it. Oh, wow. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> so... Got to cover a lot of big, big news stories when I was living in Miami, and uh, it's the kind of opportunity that I was, I was a hundred percent grateful for, and never thought that I would live to see. And also, I was so tired by the end of my time mm -hmm. in Miami. I was so worn down um, because it really, it was, 
it was an everything job. Like there was no having a hobby. There was no having relationships outside of work. It was work, work, work. And then you're off duty, but you're still on duty because work, work, work. Mm -hmm. And there were shifts that went until 2 a.m. There were shifts that started at 3 a.m. Um, there was weekends, there was nights, uh, there were, uh, 24 hour work days sometimes where you literally, you got in your car and left at the same time that you came in the day before. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. I think it was probably the most alive that I've ever felt in my career, but it was exhausting. And at some point you just have to take a look back at your life and say, all right, there are, I would like to have a life that has a rewarding career, but also these other things. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to get other things if I stay in this line of work. And so I looked for a pivot and, and I found that eventually in mm -hmm. uh, public relations and moving back to Wisconsin. Yeah. You, you, and you get in those situations, you have to kind of reprioritize what's most important for you. You know, you may have been career driven right there at that moment in time, but uh, I could definitely see burnout if you're, if you're doing that. And um, yeah, Miami is just an interesting place in general. So uh, can you talk about the the pivot into public relations? That's uh, uh, it does happen for some people that, that are on that journalism side, but um, it's kind of a, a different experience working in there. I'm sure. It, it's different in the same because you use the same, you use a lot of the same skill sets and at the end of the day, there's a lot of writing. There's a lot of being organized. Uh, there's a lot of quickly becoming familiar with facts and being able to dumb them down and recite them back to people quickly and clearly. And so in that way, it's a lot the same. And, and at the end of the day, they're both storytelling. Mm -hmm. I, I had a really neat experience when I worked at Milwaukee City Hall where we had a tour group that was visiting from Kenya. And it was, it was through a sister cities program. And, uh, I was asked to give this group of, you know, a governor and a mayor and some other like local administrators, give them a tour of city hall. And they had a translator. They didn't speak English particularly well. And so I'm walking around and I'm telling them about the incredible history of Milwaukee city hall, which was built in 1895 and was at the time, the tallest secular building in the world. And, and this, that, and the other thing and give them the whole spiel. And then at the end, I'm like, are there any questions? And I, I don't know how much of this has been translated to them or what made it through or anything like that. But one of them puts his hand up and uh, says something to the translator. And the translator says to me, he wants to know what your job is at the city. And I'm like, oh, uh, well, I do media relations and public relations. And when uh, a member of the Milwaukee City Council has a story that they need to communicate to the public. I help them communicate that through a variety of channels, through the media, through our social media, through pictures. You know, I just I help these people get their message out and, and help citizens stay better informed. And the translator looks at me like, really, really, you want me to translate that? And he sits there and he thinks for a second and then he says something and it's very, very short. And all these, all these, uh, uh, visiting ambassadors look at each other and they go, Oh, okay. And I go, you couldn't possibly have told him everything I just told you in that short answer. What did you tell them? And he looks at me and he says, I told them you were the city storyteller. Oh. And I go, 
huh, that's really good. That's, I, I'm going to use that from here on out. Because at the end of the day, whether I was reporting the news, whether I was being a media relations and public relations supervisor at Milwaukee City Hall, uh, what I went on to do at the Association of Equipment Manufacturers, or what I'm doing now at the end of the day, storytelling is what's at its heart. And so I just try to remind myself of that on a regular basis and uh, try not to get too deep into the weeds or the minutia of what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, that that describes it perfectly. Um, speaking of storytelling, I know your very first week at the at City Hall, um, you have you have a story to tell about that. Uh, if you're just listening to the audio version of this, uh, Dusty just put his hands over his face. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's a it's an interesting story. He documents it in uh, I think episode two of his podcast, Lead Balloon. But Dusty, can you describe your your first week at City Hall? So I'll give you the Cliff Notes version, because if you want a painfully elaborate version, it is it is on the Lead Balloon podcast, episode two, as you noted. But I came into my job at Milwaukee City Hall, I think I was 26, 27 years old, something like that. And I'll be the first one to admit right out the gate, I was a bit of a hotshot, right? Just walking, it just came from Miami, man. I was a, I was a news reporter and anchor in Miami. Like, you know, I'm back in this cow town. Yeah, yeah. I'm the expert here, whatever. And, uh, and, and clearly I had a lot of things to learn when I was starting at Milwaukee city hall, but probably the most important lesson that I had to learn, I had to learn it quick was how to read a room and how to get a feel for a situation before I just came in and machine gunned my opinions, uh, out for anybody that wanted to hear them. And that's a great life skill for anybody to develop, but especially when you work in the world of politics, where hurt feelings can be just a death sentence to your career in a very immediate sense, uh, that's something that I had to learn. And so it was at the end of my first week, uh, it was a short week, it was a four-day week, week of Labor Day, and it was a Friday, and my boss, Bill Arnold, uh, who had, again, just was awesome to me and, and afforded me so many opportunities to learn, but also afforded me so many second chances. Um, Bill calls me into his office and he says, all right, we're going to take you down and we're going to introduce you to one of the alder persons today. Milwaukee has 15 members of its city council, the alders. And I was going to meet my first one. And each one of these 15 people were my bosses and you've got to keep all your bosses happy. And so I'm like, all right, that's cool. Can't wait to meet him. Bill tells me his name is Alderman Jim Bowl. He represents a part of the west side of the city. He used to work for the mayor. And, uh, oh, are you familiar with the controversy over fluoride in Milwaukee's water supply? I was not familiar with the controversy over fluoride in Milwaukee's water, but I was a hotshot. And I had, in fact, covered it when I was a reporter in Portage, when the Poinette Village Board had voted to take fluoride out of their water. Fluoride, by the way, uh, is is something that's put in water to help keep your teeth strong. And there, as we all know, there is a sizable conspiracy theory contingent on the internet, more so these days than usual, it seems. And so there is a, a, a contingent on the internet that thinks that fluoride is bad for you and shouldn't be in water. 
Um, and so that's why Poinette voted to take it out of the water. And, and that's, I was presuming, what was at the heart of the Milwaukee controversy. And so I told Bill about having covered it in Poinette. But before I could finish the story, his phone rang. And he does one of these where he's like, okay, just a minute. I got to take this. We'll talk. We'll finish this later. And uh, and then we never did finish it later. And then our meeting with Jim Bull came up. So Bill brings me down. We walk into this office. Again, just beautiful, elaborate office, big, ornate, oaken desk. And this very uh, upper middle class, affluent looking gentleman with nice glasses and a fancy suit sitting behind it and uh, and shake his hand. We sit down, we start talking, making the small talk. And then Bill says, oh, and Dusty covered it when the Poinette Village Board voted to take fluoride out of their water. And without having done my homework, without stopping to read the room, I just blurted out what had always been the punchline to this story to me, which was, yes, they took fluoride out of the water and then there was a recall election and the entire village board got voted out of office. And I guess that's what you get for being uninformed on the Internet. <laughs> and Jim Bowl sitting across from me at that desk, doesn't say anything. He just sort of purses his lips and looks at me for a second and his face turns redder and redder and redder and over and I can hear Bill next to me as he like stiffens up and like digs his nails into the the armrest on his chair and at that moment I knew I'd stepped in it yeah I had said something that I should not have said and it turned out that Alderman Bull what in spite of in spite of looking like and and Alderman Bull's a great dude all right, Jim Bull now, he's no longer an alderman. He's a great dude. We've remained friends uh, ever since this day. Um, but he, at the time, had sponsored what I believe to be a fairly wrong-headed uh, uh, piece of legislation to take fluoride out of Milwaukee's water. Um, he had his reasons for doing so. I think he regrets doing so now because he caught a whole lot of political flack for it. And in fact, it was a very sore subject for him when we had that discussion back in 2012. Um, but, uh, he proceeded to just light me up like a Christmas tree, man. He read me the riot act, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and I slunk out of his office with my tail between my legs and, uh, got back upstairs. And the first thing Bill told me was, well, you need to write yourself a little letter of apology and you better, better believe that I poured on the charm in, uh, trying to make good with this person because, uh, especially in a politically charged environment like city hall doing something like that. It should have cost me my job that day. Like that, that could have been the last time I ever set foot in Milwaukee city hall and nobody would have thought twice about it. Um, my job was offered to Jim bull. Uh, I found out later that the city clerk of Milwaukee after hearing about it, walked in and said, well, what do you want to do? And Jim said, Jim bull, said, I don't think he knew what he was saying. 
I, I think he needs to learn some important lessons and hopefully this teaches him an important lesson and, and thank God that it did, but thank God that they gave me that second chance too, because uh, otherwise my career would have turned out very, very differently and I, I would not have lasted very long in public <laughs> relations. I'll tell you that. Yeah, that's, um, there, there's a lot of lessons to be learned through there. Uh, the fact that he gave you the grace in, in that second chance, like you said, you could have ended your public relations career right then and there um he held it in his hand yeah like and that i i know that people who are elected officials they hold other people's lives in their hand all the time and uh and and that becomes something that uh hopefully they don't ever lose sight of but certainly becomes commonplace for them um but when it's your life in somebody else's hand uh you know it's (laughs) It's a lot. And and he was very, very gracious. And and I'll say this, uh, there are three or four, maybe even five other people on that city council. Uh, I got to know all of them very, very well. And I can tell you that if I had shot my mouth off like that in front of some of those people, they wouldn't have thought twice. Mm-hmm. There's some cold hearted reptiles in the halls of power, man. And they would have just, nope, he's gone. Get rid of him. And, and that would have been it for me in public relations. Yeah. Well, listeners, if you want to tune into episode two, a lead balloon, uh, you can hear directly from Jim Bull, his perspective on that situation. And, um, I would highly <laughs> recommend tuning into that. Yes, one. Because the thing to do when you completely alienate another human being is to sit down with them and talk about it in blow by blow detail, because that wasn't weird. Oh, that oh, had to be no. painful. almost as painful as actually doing it. I'll tell you that, but it was, Jim was cool about it. We had some laughs and, uh, and, and ultimately, uh, I think, (laughs) I think I'm glad that we cleared the air over that. That's awesome. All right. So I want to switch gears, talk about PodCamp Media. What led you to, to starting PodCamp Media and what, what is PodCamp Media? Um, what led me, what led me to start my own company? Um, a, a complete and total, uh, loss of all common sense, uh, I guess, um, would be, uh, no, um, after I left city hall, I had a, a really great sort of cushy corporate job, um, as a strategic communications manager at the association of equipment manufacturers. Uh, they're a trade association based here out of Milwaukee. They represent companies like John Deere, Bobcat, Caterpillar, big, heavy construction and agriculture equipment. And my job was to get them engaged with new and emerging technology that was going to be entering their space, right? So if there's a new computer that you can put on an end loader, they need to be paying attention to that as much as they're paying attention to how big is the engine and how much torque does it have. And so we did in-person meetings and events and educational seminars, and we wrote articles. And again, here I am just the storyteller trying to tell all these cool stories about technology to these people. Um, But then given my background in broadcast, I figured, okay, next thing that we can do is add a podcast to this mix. And so I pitched it to my leadership team. They bought in. They gave me the green light to go ahead and just launch a podcast for AEM. And we did it and we set what we thought were some reasonable goals for it and then very rapidly just blew those goals right out of the water. Like people wanted to engage with these stories through a podcast and uh, it was cool. It was a lot of fun. And then my phone started ringing and it was 
some other people in the industry being like, hey, we really like what you're doing with the AEM podcast. How do we launch a podcast for our company? And it was sort of like A meets B and they click together in my head and I'm like, oh, there's demand for this. There's not a very good supply of companies that help other companies make podcasts. And so I, who had never had an entrepreneurial bone in my body, uh, who I still don't like running a business, like that's not fun. Um, but it became apparent to me that this could be a new way for me to make my living. So I, uh, tendered my resignation at AEM and thanked them for the opportunity. And in the same breath, uh, asked them if they wanted to be my first client so that I could continue to make the AEM podcast. And after they kind of picked their jaws up off the floor, <laughs> they did eventually uh, sign me on and, and I was able to continue making a podcast for them. But since then, um, PodCamp Media has grown. Uh, we represent clients, um, including the National Corn Growers Association, Nutrien Ag Solutions, uh, sure Payroll, which is an online payroll service provider for small and micro business, uh, the State of Wisconsin Investment Board, uh, which is uh, the group that manages the pension funds for 650,000 uh, retired and active state and municipal employees uh, in the state of Wisconsin. All these are groups that have an interest in telling their stories to people one way or the other. And we help them do that. We help them identify their goals. What do they want to accomplish by having a podcast? Who is their audience? And then we let those two sets of standards drive all the decisions that we make about that podcast. Uh, so a lot of the work that we do is and has been virtual for a long time. I started the company in 2019, started it out of my basement, and then 2020 happened and I continued to stay in my basement uh, as we all did at that point. But, um, a little bit earlier this year, uh, we reached a point where I was finally able to get it together and we've acquired, uh, an office space in downtown Milwaukee. I've built out uh, a little studio, uh, where I, we do most of, uh, the recording that we do locally anyway. Again, most of our clients are still virtual because they're scattered all over the country, but, uh, it's nice having this space now as well. Uh, to offer that additional in-person touch. And it's nice to have a recording space where I don't have uh, the thunder of teeny tiny little pattering feet over my head uh, and screaming kids in the background of uh, recording sessions as well. So uh, that's uh, yeah. PodCamp Media. That's what we do. And, and it's been a, a real trip, man. Oh, I can only imagine. I can definitely attest to the the kids running around and dogs around here and all that stuff too. Um, people are like, "Oh, edit it out," and I'm sure, as you know by now, there's only so much that you can do with editing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So you, you touched on um, the the internal. I don't know if uh, some of these um, podcasts you you work with are more internal focused on on the company side or external focus. There's probably a mix of both. Uh, it seems like the general population are consuming podcasts a lot more, more often than they have been in, in recent years. Um, can you talk about the importance of a brand getting their, their stories out there, whether it's internally or externally? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think you're right. I think that there is a, a big shift in the way that people consume media in general, right? It used to be you read your paper in the morning, 
you listen to the radio in your car, you watch the evening news when you got home at the end of the night. But all the time there, you are consuming information on someone else's schedule, right? And what we've seen over the last 10, 15 years is probably one of the biggest shifts ever in the way that people consume information, where now everything is on demand. And so you want to read the news, you pull up the app on your phone or look at it on your computer. Uh, you want to uh, you know, watch a video, you pull it up on YouTube. You want to listen to something, you want to press play and hear it from the beginning and listen through till the end. You don't want to be doing it on someone else's schedule. And so, again, I, I loved working in radio. And, and it's the very best. And there will always be a place for radio. I think that it is important for radio to be locally focused if it is going to succeed. And so, again, companies like Big Radio in Monroe, uh, they're doing it right because they have roots in the community. But these big, you know, massive chains like uh, iHeart, formerly Clear Channel and Cumulus, um, these companies that own thousands of radio stations across the country, I think that the future is a little bit bleaker uh, for them. And, and I've seen the layoffs come again and again and again. But I'm getting preachy. I apologize for that. Uh, why? Why? So that's why podcasting, I think, is primed to just continue to be a bigger part of the way that people consume information in their day to day lives. And so then as a company, you want to have a podcast because it gives you a channel to tell your story unvarnished, unfiltered by intermediaries to your customers or to your potential customers or to your internal stakeholders. And in fact, among the clients that we have right now, we have clients that are using sort of all three strategies um, where some of them are have a podcast because they need to engage their workforce in a new direction that the company is taking. And so they're educating them and getting them to buy into this new way of doing business by using the podcast. Some of them use it as a top of funnel marketing opportunity. We call it content marketing in the business. I hate the word content because it sounds like something that shows up on a you know, 500 pound pallet in the back of a truck and it's all right, unload the content. But um, content marketing is, is essentially uh, finding new customers by telling them stories and educating them and getting them engaged with you through content. Ugh, hate that word. Um, and then uh, and then some of them are using it as a, a member engagement tool where you've got dues-paying members uh, of an organization like the National Corn Growers Association, and, and you need to remind them what sort of leadership your organization is providing at a national level. And so you engage them in this sort of uh, uh, member engagement thought leadership role where uh, you bring new topics for them to think about and consider. And so all three of those are really, really great reasons for a brand to have a podcast. Um, but of course, I tell everybody, if you're going to do a podcast and it's going to sound like every other podcast that's out there and you're not going to do anything original and you're not going to have a message and you're not going to have a specially targeted niche, don't bother doing it. If you haven't sat and thought about who is your audience, either, gee, you're great. Yours, your podcast is a great example of finding a really great untapped niche because Monroe and, and Southern Wisconsin is its own ecosystem. 
and it's it's very geographically defined your niche in in what you're doing but it is an untapped niche but you know i was talking to a, a realty uh, organization a, a, a year or so ago and they were playing with the idea of launching a podcast and they come to me and they're like all right we've been thinking about it we want to do a podcast where we talk about conditions on the real estate market and how it's affecting home buyers. And I stopped and I pulled out my phone and I typed in realty podcast, 10,000 mm -hmm. results. Mm -hmm. You think that you are going to get into that space and make any headway when there's already 10,000 people who have been doing the exact same thing and they've been doing it longer than you have. I don't think this is going to work out. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Finding, finding your niche is, is one of the, the hard things for sure. For me, it, it took me a long time to get to where I'm at. I'm still kind of evolving a bit, but yeah, I, I definitely attest to that. Um, but that's a, that's a good segue into what I want to talk about next is lead balloon. The, the podcast that you, you host and produce. Um, it's a very unique podcast. Uh, can you kind of set up what, what you're doing with lead balloon? Yeah, certainly. Well, when I was launching the company and, and again, uh, rewind the tape and and now here's Dusty, unemployed, scared, sitting in his basement, not knowing how to run a business, right? But I knew that I wanted my customers, potential customers, to look at having a podcast as a content marketing opportunity. And I'm of the school of thought of don't tell me, show me. And so... I decided very early on that if I was going to try to sell podcasts as content marketing, I should also sell through having a podcast that was content marketing. And so I sat down and I thought very, very specifically about who is my target audience? Who are my customers? And those are pretty much public relations and marketing professionals. Those are going to be my initial point of contact. If I get an account with a client, they're going to be the people that I work with most often. And so public relations managers, marketing directors, people with titles like that are whose ears I wanted to get into with my message. I've spent a lot of time around people like that in the course of my duties. And I happen to know that... A, there are a lot of public relations and marketing podcasts out there. Like, there are a glut of those. B, they all kind of sound the same at the end of the day. Uh, there's a lot of talking heads. Uh, there's a lot of thought leadership angles. Um, there's a lot of topic of the week. We're going to bring in a subject matter expert and talk to them about SEO or whatever. And I also know that those groups of people like to get together for a happy hour on occasion. And when they get together for happy hour, they like to sit around and tell these old war stories. War stories like I just told you about when I came in and alienated my boss, uh, one of my bosses on my first week on the job. War stories about times when a press conference went off the rails or times when they were way in over their heads on a particular assignment. Or, or times when uh, there was just, there were, things went completely and totally wrong. They like telling disaster stories at the end of the day. And I realized that while this is a, a long 
tried and true tradition in public relations and marketing, there wasn't a podcast that was a channel for that sort of thing yet. And so I found something original. I found something that I thought was compelling. And I found something that I thought that uh, people in my niche, people who I needed to talk to would be interested in hearing. And so I, I created a show around it. And that's what we've done at uh, Lead Balloon. We're, I think, 20, 26 episodes in now. Um, and, uh, and I've talked to public relations and marketing practitioners from around the country um, of, uh, of all genders, races, and ethnic backgrounds, um, all levels of professionalism from different sectors, but everybody has the common thread of having worked in strategic communications and having had a really, really bad day or series of days and just getting them to relive those stories and, and telling it in as immersive a way as possible. I like to say that we're sort of like this American life, but for strategic communicators and, we have a lot of fun with it. It's uh, it's a lot of work, um, but and and we don't get paid for it. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's uh, that's the one one thing that we've got around here that doesn't pay necessarily. But gosh, it's a lot of fun, and and I've gotten to have really compelling conversations with some really interesting people as a result. I mean, it it it's a funnel for you to potentially get work though too so there there's potential money that's out there you're not seeing it on the the daily or weekly but um it is it's a way to showcase the work that you do it's a way to uh, connect with some of those other people so i think indirectly there's probably some potential financial impacts there but yes it's all it's i'm sure it's a lot of work the amount of effort you put into editing and uh the voiceover work that you add in there um the storytelling it's a lot and uh that's what makes it really compelling. I don't work in the public relations or marketing area, but uh, I'm tuning in. I'm probably halfway through all your episodes and uh, just the way you tell a story is, is really great. So um, I really enjoy it. Thanks, man. That's, that's really nice to, it's really nice to hear. I'm sure that you've come to realize this as a, a podcaster as well, but very often it feels like you're having these great conversations and you're putting together these these really compelling professional sounding podcasts or shows. And then you put it out there into the world and you can see the download numbers tick up and that makes you feel good. But it still very often feels like a one-way conversation where you see these numbers and people are listening, but you don't always get feedback. And all this is my not so subtle way of saying, leave Corey some reviews jump onto your iTunes right now and give it a five star rating and, and maybe write a nice review and tell them what you like about it. Um, and that all not only makes Corey feel good about the hard work that he's doing, it also boosts his rankings in the algorithm of these podcast apps and helps more people hear Wisco legacy. So reviews and ratings are your duty as a podcast listener if you want to reward Corey for all of his hard work and make him feel like he's not just talking to a wall. Well, I appreciate that, Dusty. Um, <laughs> it's it's hard to beg it for yourself. It's really easy to beg on somebody else's behalf. I'll say that. Yeah. But you sure. can only say, give me a review so many <laughs> times before you start feeling pitiful about yourself. Mm. You mentioned, too, um, uh, how how having a show like that can generate opportunities, and I did just want to throw out there because it's it it always kind of feels neat to me um, that oh my gosh it's working. 
that about 50% of my client load right now are actually people that reached out and found me because of Lead Balloon <laughs> or people who I contacted to be a guest on Lead Balloon who then turned around and said, man, that was really cool. Can we hire you? And so you're absolutely right. It is. It's a business generator and, uh, and, and a really powerful content marketing tool as well. It is working at the end of the day. Yeah. And you've been rewarded for it. Uh, you won Adweek's um, 2020 marketing podcast of the year, which is uh, a pretty big deal in the marketing space. Uh, what was that like? Surreal, just unbelievable. Like, I mean, everything that happened in 2020 was surreal, right? And so here we are in the heart of the pandemic. And, and I did, it was late October, early November of 2020, which was just, that was, that was when we were approaching the worst that the pandemic ever got. Hopefully the worst that it will ever got, but I guess we'll see how this winter goes. But, and, and my wife is an incredible, talented, intelligent, passionate physician. And so she works in the middle of this just nightmare of, of COVID every day, right? She's like a firefighter running into a burning building and she's a hero and all that. Um, and so she, here she is just having these like super intense weeks at work. And then here's me sitting in the basement playing with a microphone and like having video calls. And so it was already super surreal and super weird. And then I get this, this email from Adweek where I entered that contest on like a whim. I'm like, this is like buying a lottery ticket. You know, there's an entry fee and, and I'm a small business and we're still not bringing in a bunch of revenue at that time. And so I'm, you know, paying for this, this entry fee and thinking it's like buying a lottery ticket, one in a million chance that anything happens with this, but you know, I'll just throw it out there and see what happens because it would be really good for the business if, and, and we won. And, and I, I guess they, they like the approach that we brought to the marketing podcast space, but marketing podcast of the year from Adweek is, is not a mantle, uh, that I saw us winning or assuming anytime soon, but I sure am glad that we got it because, you know, again, I, I got that email on a day when it, like so many people in COVID, you know, there'd be days when like, you'd forget to shower. Mm -hmm. And so I was on like day two and a half without a shower, just kind of like working in the basement. And I came up to get like a bubbly water out of the fridge and I'm like, what's this? And then I was like, just like hooping and hollering and running around and and my kid, who was like two at the time, looks at me and goes, Daddy, what's the matter with you? <laughs> Did not know. But yeah, I yelled a lot. That was that was what it was like. I yelled a lot. It was super. Oh, yeah. I, I couldn't imagine. Uh, you were also uh, part of a uh, subject of a column in Forbes, too. How did that come I was. Out? That's right. Well, that was uh, partially as a result of the ad week win. Uh, we got a little notoriety. Um, we were able to grow the business a little bit more and, and sign a bigger account. And so that was really exciting. But then, of course, I what do you always do in podcasting? You keep grinding. And so you can't just sit back and rest on your laurels. You can't be like, I got an award and and call that good enough. And so I kept on working on the show. And, and one person that I reached out to to be a guest on the show 
um, is a fellow by the name of Henry DeVries, uh, who once upon a time uh, was the public relations vice president for uh, a major financial institution, financial and insurance institution called Forrester's. And uh, I wanted to pick his brain about that experience, see if he had a good disaster story. And it turned out he did. And so we've done a lead balloon episode about that. But um, we had a great conversation. And and afterwards, he's like, you know, I write these columns for Forbes. And uh, and I think that what you do and the way that you conduct business is a a really cool and worthy story. And so um, can I in turn interview you for my column for Forbes. And I wasn't about to turn my nose up at that. I'll take all the press that I can get. So that was, that was, that was again, just surreal. Everything, everything that happened in 2020 was surreal, but especially when nice things happened uh, in 2020, it's, it's extra surreal. Yeah, for sure. But it's, it all comes back to, to the work ethic you have, the, part of it's probably the foundation you built um, way back when at big radio and going through journalism school and all that um, kind of helped pave the way to where you're at right now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's all, you know, when I was 17 year old kid working at big radio and still didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up um, in a lot of ways. And, and this is a saying that I take from my dad, but I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Um, and, and so all you can do is build a foundation with the opportunities that are afforded you and, and throw yourself at it and put everything that you have into it. And, uh, more opportunities will arise as a result of that. And, and it's, it's hard work, it's creativity, um, and it's a little bit of good luck. And I'm fortunate to have had a little bit of each one of those things along the lines, but there's never been a clear, direct route laid out for me. It's always just given what you got to what you're doing and then being able to see opportunity where other people would typically kind of sit back and rest on their laurels. And, uh, always being ready for that next opportunity. And then when it comes, whatever it is, being able to say yes. You know, I didn't necessarily want to move to Miami, but the opportunity came up and I said yes. And and uh, the experience shaped me as a human being and, and made me a better professional and a more empathetic person. And uh, so when opportunity rears its head, be ready to say yes, and and the rest will fall into place behind it. And uh, what, uh, what at the time looked like just, a, a, a maze in a crazy world. I look back at it and I'm like, oh yeah, there's the path. That's what I was looking for. Yeah. If people are interested in, uh, working with you for, through PodCamp Media or Lead Balloon, uh, listening to Lead Balloon, where can they find it? Can you can go you? to podcampmedia.com. And podcampmedia.com slash lead balloon for information specifically about the podcast, as well as all the episodes that we have out there. You can also find lead balloon on any podcast app, uh, your Apple podcast, your Google podcast, your Spotify, whatever your app preference is. Just search for lead balloon right there and mash that subscribe button, as they say. Nice. All right. I have three rapid fire questions about the state of Wisconsin and one final question. Um, So first thing that comes to mind for these next three. All right. All right. Uh, what's your favorite restaurant in Wisconsin? The Old Fashioned, downtown Madison. Nice. What's your favorite event in Wisconsin? Game day at Lambeau Field. 
Nice. And where's your favorite place to hang out in Wisconsin? Gibraltar Rock is a state wildlife area just north of Lodi. Not too far from Devil's Lake, but without the insane foot traffic and the crowds that you get at Devil's Lake. But the view is almost as good. It's just south of Lake Wisconsin there, and it's a really, really neat place for hiking and hanging out. You can just, I've spent entire afternoons just sitting up on top of that rock, looking out over the landscape, and it's its as beautiful as anything you'll ever see. I'll have to check that out. Awesome. All right, final question for you, Dusty. Uh, when all is said and done, what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? You know, you're a dad, Corey, and so I think... I think your your experience is probably similar to mine where I didn't I didn't think a lot about legacy uh until I became a dad and then all of a sudden it uh it starts being on your mind a whole lot. And so if we're talking about a legacy, uh I want to leave a legacy for my kids uh of of just a few core tenets and um and and as my as my dad and my mom used to tell me, you know, if if you find something that you love, you know, you'll never work a day in your life. And of course, that's not true. You'll work plenty hard, but you'll do it. And at the end of the day, feel pretty good about it. But the legacy that I want to leave for my kids is agnostic to what you do in your life. It's all about how you do it. And I want to teach my kids to do everything that they do with passion, with empathy, with joy and with every fiber of their being. There's no going halfway, you know. Um, you've got to throw yourself at life with everything that you've got. And so those four tenets right there, I feel like it doesn't matter what you do in your life. If you do it with passion, with empathy, with joy, and with everything you've got, you'll live a rewarding life. And so that's that's the legacy that I want to leave. That's phenomenal. Um, anything else you want to add on Wisco legacy or we'll, we'll close out. No, man. I just, I'm, I'm really, uh, when I found out about the podcast, I was, I was flattered that you invited me to come on, but I was really excited that it's happening too, because, you know, again, where we come from in the Midwest generally, but Monroe specifically storytelling is a really, really big part of what we do. And so it's always been a passion of mine. I'm always eager to see somebody else who shares that passion and I'm really glad that there's somebody out there that's focused specifically on telling the great stories that come from the greatest cheese town in the entire damn world. You got that right. Well, Dusty, I could talk to you for all day long. So I um, appreciate you coming on to Wisco Legacy. Thanks, man. Thanks for the invite and keep up the great work. We'll see you around. Thanks.